This morning, we're continuing our series through the book of Revelation, the very last book in the Bible, and we've come to chapters 18 and 19. But to understand what's going on in these chapters and how it relates to us, we need a running start. In fact, we need to go all the way back to the third book from the beginning of the Bible. So if you brought along a copy of the Bible, uh, I hope that you did, find the third book from the start, Leviticus. And find Leviticus chapter 14, because if you don't know Leviticus 14, you can't know Revelation 18. Leviticus chapter 14. Now, while you're finding it, Leviticus was written, this book of the Bible was written about 1,500 years prior to the book of Revelation being written. And Leviticus was written shortly after God rescued his people, the Israelites, from captivity to Egypt. And he brought them out of Egypt into Palestine. And just before they made it into the promised land, into Palestine, God sits Israel down and he gives them a law code. Now that might sound boring and sad to you, but imagine living in a state of anarchy. That sounds horrific. So he sits them down and he says, here's how life together will work for you. Here's the kind of, somebody's got to pick if you're going to drive on the right or the left side of the road. So he said, okay, here's how I want you to organize your life together. And in Leviticus chapter 14, he's dealing with what they're going to do when mold gets into a house, when leprosy gets into a house. Now, this is a serious thing because epidemics destroy civilizations. And so it might sound quite pedantic to you, but it actually is. Public health matters, but as you're going to see in a minute, this ends up opening up into way more than public health. Leviticus chapter 14, starting in verse 33, God is telling Israel what to do when a house gets mold in it. I'll start reading in verse 33. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, all right, when you come into the land of Canaan, which I give you for a possession, and I put a case of leprous disease in a house in the land of your possession, then he, the one who owns the house shall come and tell the priest, there seems to me to be some kind of disease in my house. Then the priest shall command that, the, that they empty the house before the priest goes to examine the disease. Let all that's in the house be declared unclean. And afterward, the priest shall go in to see the house, and he shall examine the disease. Remember that. He shall examine the disease. And if the disease is in the walls of the house with greenish or reddish spots, and if it appears to be deeper than the surface... Then the priest shall go out of the house to the door of the house and shut up the house seven days. Kind of like a quarantine. And the priest shall come again on the seventh day and look. And if the disease has spread in the walls of the house, then the priest shall command that they take out the stones in which is the disease and throw them in an unclean place outside the city. So wherever these, this mold is growing, just like a lot of you have done to your house perhaps, take that bit of drywall out. They didn't have drywall yet, so they had stones. And he shall have the inside of the house scraped all around. You know, they put a tin over it and 
demold it. All right. And the plaster that they scrape off, they shall pour out in an unclean place outside the city. You've got to get this away from civilization. Verse 42. Then they shall take other stones and put them in the place of these stones, and he shall have take other plaster and plaster the house. Some of us live in houses that are in the middle of projects that have gone on for years. He said, take care of this one right away. Verse 43. If the disease breaks out again in the house, after he has taken out the stones and scraped the house and plastered it, then the priest shall go and look. And if the disease has spread in the house, it is a persistent, leprous disease in the house. It is unclean. And he shall break down the house, its stones and timber, and all the plaster of the house, and he shall carry them out of the city to an unclean place. All right. So when a priest discovers that mold is spreading and cannot be stopped, the house must be dismantled. No stone left on another. Now remember that. Let's turn to our gospel reading. Like I said, you've got to get a running start to Revelation uh, 18. It's sort of like turning to the end of a novel and think you can just start there. You can't. You've got to read up to it. Okay. When we turn to Matthew chapter 24, we've just fast-forwarded 1,500 years in the drama of Scripture. And if you've been paying attention, if you've been reading the Bible like you should, and how should you read a book that the first sentence says in the beginning? Well, a story is coming. So you should read it like a story. If you've been reading a book like we read stories, like we read novels, and so you've been paying attention to plot and characters, and foreshadowing, and themes. If you've read this book the way you would read a great novel, when you get to Matthew chapter 23, you know that Jesus is the priest of Leviticus 14 who's inspecting a house with mold in it. And the house is Jerusalem. And it's the temple. And all through Matthew 23, Jesus is the inspecting priest giving his report. The leaders of Israel are based in Jerusalem. The Pharisees, the scribes, the elders, and the priests. And the city of Jerusalem is their house. And the temple is the primary part of the house. And they live in a contaminated house. And in our gospel reading, we picked up the climactic end of the priest report on the house. We're in the eighth woe. The leaders of Israel have not only ignored the weighty matters of justice and mercy and truth, they have killed God's people. Verse 34, I send you prophets and wise men and scribes and some of whom you will kill and crucify. And some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth from the blood of the innocent Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Barakiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. In other words, Jesus has found Jerusalem guilty of a mold, a plague, a persistent leprous disease. They are guilty of the mass murderer of all of God's messengers over the century. And therefore, look what Jesus says the sentence will be for this verdict. Verse 36, Truly I say to you, all of these things 
will come upon this generation. What things? Here's where suddenly the judge loses his composure. And after pronouncing guilty, before he passes sentence, he weeps. He breaks down. Verse 37. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings? And you would not let me. See, your house is left to you desolate. Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And he's quoting from Leviticus 14. The high priest has just inspected the temple. And the temple is contaminated beyond repair. In other words, as is common in the Gospels, Jesus says, Jerusalem, before this generation dies, you're going to face the judgment. Now, then notice in the next verse we're told, Jesus left the temple. He couldn't even bring himself to say it. He walks away. His disciples come up, and like usual in the Gospels, they've totally missed the point. Notice what they say. Not, ooh, gross, the mold. They say, oh, how beautiful. Look at this temple. Look at these buildings. And Jesus answered them, you see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown to the ground. In other words, the disciples miss the point. They're amazed at the beautiful buildings, but the great high priest has just inspected Jerusalem like Leviticus said he would, and the mold, the contamination, the disease is spreading. It cannot be stopped, so there is no choice. What do you do in this situation? Every stone has to be taken down and thrown outside the city. Jesus delivered this verdict and this sentence on Jerusalem in the mid-30s of the first century A.D. We know that. We know when he did this. We know that a man named Jesus existed. We know that he said these words. And we know when he said these words. Now we're ready to understand what's going on in Revelation chapter 18. Please find Revelation chapter 18. Notice how this chapter begins. It begins with this angel coming down from heaven and calling out with a loud voice, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. And the entire chapter is a description of the destruction of Jerusalem. It's about the verdict and sentence that Jesus delivered about 30 years earlier. It's coming true. Notice the way the chapter ends. Notice Revelation chapter 18 verse 24. In her, in this Babylon was found the blood of the prophets and the saints and all who had been slain on earth. That's the charge Jesus gave to her. Remember the blood from righteous Abel all the way to Zechariah? What, what is Abel to Zechariah? A to Z. It, it works in English and in Greek. All of the righteous blood is laid at the feet of Jerusalem. Jerusalem is the only city in the Bible that fulfills Revelation 18. It is the only city that has been charged with all the righteous blood. 
That's one of the reasons we know that this Babylon, this is what God is now calling Jerusalem. Now think about that. He's now calling his city. You've turned into Babylon. Remember the book of Revelation is written a little less than 30 years after Jesus passed the judgment back in Matthew 23. It's written in the early 60s of the first century. And we know beyond a shadow of a doubt our, our modern world knows, Christians and non-Christians, we are absolutely certain that in the year 70 AD, on April the 14th, just a few days before Passover, the Roman general Titus surrounded Jerusalem with four legions of Roman soldiers. They laid siege to Jerusalem for four months, and on the 30th of August, the Romans broke through the walls, destroyed the city, and tore the temple down and threw the stones down into a gully. Janelle and I and Zelda and, and what's your name? Aaron. Aaron. That's his name. <laughs> Righteous Aaron. We were there last summer right now. On this day, we were there. And we saw those stones that those Romans threw in that ditch. They're still in the ditch. They're still there. That's what Revelation 18 is saying. Why? Why? Why is this happening to Jerusalem? Because Jerusalem turned on God's people. They have turned on Christians. They are killing them. They are shedding their blood. And always remember this. In the Bible, the question of evil is not a question of God's existence. It's a question of, is God just? See, people in our world today say bad things happen. How can God exist? In the Bible, they say really bad things are happening. What's up with you, God? You claim to be a judge. You claim to be just. Your justice is called into question when evil persists. This side of modernity, his existence gets called into question. But in the world of the Bible, it's his justice. Are you really just, God? It's like a little kid getting beat by a bully on a playground and dad is just watching. Can you imagine the kid looking at dad? Not doubting his existence, but his love and his justice. Why are you not defending me? The Bible, for it, the question of evil is a question of God's justice. Remember, go back to Revelation chapter 6. Look at verse 9. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the land? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as themselves had been. So there's these, there's these martyrs in heaven in chapter 6 saying, God, if you are who you claim to be, we were killed for you. Aren't you going to do anything about this? And he says, wait, wait. And then in Revelation chapter 18, he answers. He answers them. In the year AD 70, we know that God kept his word. The martyrs appeal to God. 
And when all is said and done, Jerusalem is left in an eerie silence. Did you get that stuff at the end of chapter 18? No more the sound of harpists and musicians. Can you imagine that being said of Harrisonburg? No more the ukulele, the recorder. No more the guitar. What would it mean about Harrisonburg to say, no more is music heard in it? No more where there'll be any craftsman, the sound of the mill, the light of a lamp. You know what this is? This is Will Smith walking through a massive silent city in the movie I Am Legend. A silent city is a horror story. This is the horrifically silent cityscapes in the opening episodes of The Walking Dead or Cormac McCarthy's The Road. This is the description of Jerusalem at the end. But a city that is depopulated and silent. But the story doesn't stop there. Turn to Revelation chapter 19, verse 1. After this, right, after the silence, after the depopulated city, what is the next thing we're told? After this, I heard something, right? When he's looking at Jerusalem, it's silent. It's, it's horrible. It's, it's zombie apocalypse. But then the next thing he says, but then I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God. So while Jerusalem is depopulated and silent, heaven is populated and erupting in a raucous, joy-filled, ear-splitting worship service. All of heaven greets the destruction of Jerusalem with resounding praise and joy. And in Revelation chapter 19, verses 1 to 10, we have song after song, wave after wave of praise, a loud outburst of singing and worship as a response to God's destruction of Jerusalem. And that's offensive to those of us who have never been raped. It's offensive to hoity-toity, secure White Americans. It's offensive to those of us who have never experienced real evil. It offends the suburban elite. But it is not read as an offense in the parts of the world where real evil has really ravaged people. Notice in verse 2, they are singing praises to God because he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. They're praising God because he's acted with justice, because he's passed judgment. And then in the second song in verse 3, they sing again, Hallelujah, the smoke from her goes up forever and ever. In other words, God makes sure this judgment sticks. Jerusalem's overthrow is final. 
And then in verse 6, the song starts up again. I mean, all the saints in heaven can't keep quiet. Here they go again. Read for a third time. Look at verse 6. I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, like the sounds of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give Him glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and His bride has made herself ready. It was granted for her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. And here we see that the song of praise has shifted from praising God for his justice to praising God for his enthronement. This is how God becomes king, by purging evil from the land. Do you see the joy of heaven is not a screen to protect us from the shock of injustice. Some people look at Christians today and they say we're all happy clappy because we bury our head in the sand like an ostrich denying the brutal reality of the world around us. That Christianity and its, its joyfulness is some white middle class suburban kind of protected space. But no, in true Christianity... Joy is not a screen that protects us from injustice. There is no joy without justice. Without justice, there is no joy in Christianity. And if you've ever experienced real injustice, you know that when justice happens, there's real joy. In the face of real evil, real joy is the right response to justice served. But it's also... The response to a deep faith, justice will be served. That's the point of the song. God has proven that salvation, glory, and power are his. And he did this by passing judgment on the city that killed his son. And filled up. With many, many more killings of Christians thereafter. And his act of justice is proof that he's God. He is worthy of praise because he is a just God. He is the king who does justice on the earth. Now, what are we to do with all of this? Two things. First of all, we need to learn to cry out for justice. On behalf of those people who are being persecuted for their loyalty to Jesus. We live in a world where ISIS warriors behead Christians and release the film where Boko Haram kidnaps Christian girls as child brides for Islamic husbands, where the church is being driven from our Middle Eastern birthplace. We should stand with Bishop Andudu and his family and the church in the Numa Mountains of Sudan who have been so violently assaulted by a militant Islam. Like the martyrs under the altar in chapter 6, we should agitate God. We should call out to God. We should accuse God. We should say, how long? How long until you live up to who you claim to be? How long will you refrain from judging and avenging their blood? How long before you do some judging to prove that you're the judge? Here in America, in a church like ours, some of us have been given the opportunity to live very peaceful lives. But not all of us. There are people in this room who have experienced acts of extreme evil and injustice 
because of their faith. There are people in our community who have experienced injustice. We need to learn how to lament. I think this is one of the most important things for the white church in America. It's to learn how to lament. Corporately, in worship. We've got to figure this one out. We've got to figure out how to bring right into the middle of our Sunday gatherings a cry to God to keep his word, to be the judge of all the earth. And so in the near future, we are trying to figure out how on a regular basis, maybe something like every quarter, our service will be a service of lament. Because every Sunday that we gather, there are people in our community and in our world for whom their worship is lament. And we have to learn to stand with them. The Bible commands us to weep with those who weep. The second thing I think we should do with this is we need to continue to learn how to sing. Did you notice the progression? Look in chapter 19 verse 1. The great multitude in heaven is singing with what? What does it say in your Bible? A loud voice. That's where it starts. And by the time we get three hallelujahs deep, in verse 6, the praise has reached a crescendo. It's no longer loud. No, by this point, it's thunderous. Notice what it says. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him glory. You see... Can you imagine a church on the other side of evil seeing justice done? How would you sing? Would you sing louder than you did this morning already? You see, the joy in the judge defending the powerless is an eruption. Our praise should be loud. I'm not saying get all obnoxious and start yelling and screaming. The church's praise should shake the walls, though. Our church has always sang loud, and for this I've given thanks, but we can sing louder. Some of you are not carrying your weight. Some of you are more concerned about how you sound then you do know deep in your heart that our God is a righteous judge who defends his children. The praise of a church that has experienced radical evil and justice is not a tepid praise. And isn't that true of us? Hasn't our God defeated our great enemy at great cost to himself, and pass judgment on him. God has blessed our church with, a, with wonderful music leaders from the beginning, starting with Ernie, and then Luke, and Don, and John, and Lindy, and now we are so grateful that our Lord has brought Ryan here. And why does our church pay somebody to lead us music? Why do we put all of this money into these microphones and this sound system, and why do our sound guys get here early and they make sure... Every, why, why all of this? Why do we stand up and sing every Sunday? Because God is God. And he's the righteous judge. 
And we praise him. We praise him, those of us who have experienced his judgment on our behalf as victims. And we praise him because we know when, when the dust settles, one kingdom will remain. And our God will finish his work of passing just judgment on his enemies. We battle the beast when we refuse to worship money, sex, and power, and we instead sing our love and our allegiance and our affections and our joy and our loyalty to the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the King forevermore. Let's pray.